All right, y'all, welcome back to another podcast. This is Lawns Across America. We are now into February 2024. And um, as I look across the country, there's like this warm-up coming in February for the season that they're calling for. And it's kind of through the Midwest, the middle of the Midwest. That's the El Nino pattern we've been talking about. I actually put a video out. We've been working hard this year to uh, build some functionality into the Yard Mastery app to where now I can push videos to specific segments in the app so i can i can do like a video just for cool season folks and send them a video on the home page of their app or i can do it just for warm season but i can also break it down in many other ways i could slice it dice it by the program that they're on so i could send something to only cool season folks on the all liquid program or only warm season folks on the all granular program or i can just do say everybody in the app that's on the all granular you know, and or the hybrid, which is the granular plus the liquid uh, biostimulus. I can send stuff all in those segments. I can even do it now by state, by zip code. Pretty cool stuff. Now, I don't know if I'll get down to the level of sending things to zip codes, but for sure, probably statewide stuff if something happens. But anyway, so I recently sent an app out using that functionality, a video out in the app using that functionality where I'm talking about that warm-up that's coming because what's going to happen with the app is you guys know the way our, our soil temperature strategy works because... Repetition is the key to learning, even though most of you have heard this hundreds of times. But, you know, as the strategy works, the first thing we want to get down in the spring, no matter what our grass type is, is prodiamine. That's the pre-emergent that's going to stop crabgrass. And you get that down prior to those weeds germinating. Those seeds are in the soil from last year because crabgrass is an annual grassy weed. Germinates in the spring, lives and rages all summer, crabs out, takes spots in your lawn. And then when we get to the fall, it drops prolific seeds. And then when you get a frost, it dies and leaves a bare spot. That's why it's a, it's like the perfect attack, especially on cool season grass, because it spreads out wide like hands, just pushing the grass down and away. That's kind of, that's like that whole crab. It's a perfect name for this grass, crabgrass. Imagine a crab with big old claws using those claws to just press your grass down while it spreads out into a nice little soft spot in the grass. So what are those Australian crabs that march across Australia every few years? One of those kind of things, right? So that's crabgrass. So we want to stop that. And the way that you do that because of the way its growth nature is, it, all those seeds are in the, in the soil from last year. They're also in the soil from years pre, prior. It's not like 100% of last year's germinate 100% of the time this year. Some soils, some of those seeds can stay in the ground for years and years. And then, you know, because some are deeper, some are more shallow. So the conditions get just right at certain points. But all those seeds are there in the soil now. And as your soil temperatures cross around that 55 degree mark, that is when those seeds will start waking up to germinate. And so what we do is we put down a pre-emergent herbicide. It's called prodiamine. We put that down prior to that 55 mark. We usually say as soil temperatures cross 50 heading to 55, because sometimes the, the time between 50 to 55 isn't that long. It, it can happen in a week. In Florida, it happens in hours. <laughs> Your soil temp will go from 50 to 60 within several hours, um, which brings another challenge with the soil temperature-based strategy that having an app. But uh, back to it is you're going to uh, start getting notifications that when your soil temp crosses 50, it's time to put down that pre-emergent. So what could happen with this big early warm-up that we're seeing is some soil temps may start to cross that 50 mark abnormally early because we know that February's warm-up, you're still going to get most of you. Now, again, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about folks back from where I'm from, Indiana, Illinois over there, even over into New Jersey on the East Coast over that way, that, that kind of 
Um, lat is fat. Latitude, longitude. Long is long. Lat is fat. Which one is that? Latitude. Changes in attitudes, changes in latitudes. That latitude where you have Illinois, Indiana over to New Jersey, I hope those are on the same latitude, but even over across to Iowa, you know, uh, out that way, even over to Nebraska, you guys, you know, your winter is pretty long. Um, Not talking to folks in Tennessee who are probably going to come into the window a lot quicker. Man, I'm rambling, but it's fun. It's fun to ramble. So what's going to happen with this warm-up is folks in Indiana that usually aren't going to get a historically across 50 until, say, March sometime, they might get a little notification that, hey, you crossed 50 in February. That's early. Too early, and you should not throw down. So what I talked about in the video I kind of alluded to that I sent in the app was, hey, guys, if you see that, please understand it's too early. You know, you got to understand what five-year averages look like, 10-year averages. And we do try to reference that in the app. We try to use, we've built into our logic to try to reference, hey, if you're if you're too close to the, uh, if you're not close enough to the historical time, don't trigger. But it, it's a, how do I say, it? it's not something we've been able to implement app-wide or because it's not, I don't know, it's just a complicated build. So it's a thing we've messed with a little bit here and there, kind of gone back on. And we're working on it. But eventually, the app will be perfect to where it looks at the 10-year average. And if the actuals are, you know, say a month before that, then it doesn't trigger because you got that early warm-up. Wow, what a nice ramble here in the beginning of time. <laughs> Trying to give you guys a little bit of insight into some of the things that I deal with this time of year. I also have ways to manually control the app. Sometimes if I see something coming, we can just manually hold off a zip code or a state from triggering. But pre-emergent time is going to maybe come early for some of you in February. So if you do see that, spread the word. Hey, it's a little bit early. All right, enough of the rambles. Today, we're going to talk about soil testing, and we're going to go a lot deeper. And um, when I say we're going to go deep, we're going to go into the science. And I say it's not really that deep, actually. But I don't get deep into the science that way. That's why I have partners that are experts in these things that I work with, and I bring them on. And so that's the My Soil guys. They're going to come on today, and we're going to talk about soil testing because one of the things that we get a question on quite often, especially now that our business is a few years old, is, "Hey, I got a, I did a soil test two years ago, and here are my results. And then I've been on the program for two years, and I did one again, and look, the results are very similar or almost the same." You know, I thought I would be building all these nutrients and people wonder why aren't things sticking in the soil? And I'm like, well, that's pretty interesting. I mean, the first thing I always say is, well, look at your lawn. Your lawn's using it, right? Um, you you eat food every day because your body consumes it. That's calorie burn, right? So you have to continually eat. And um, even though plants make their own food through the process of photosynthesis, we need to give them the vitamins and minerals and nutrients, essentially, that the lawn needs to support that photosynthesis. And that's what fertilizing is. And that's what we're doing when we get a soil test is we're understanding exactly what our soil has and doesn't have so we can supplement the things that it needs. Okay, that's the basics. But it takes a long time to actually change your soil. In other words, your soil is what it is. It's been that way probably for thousands of years, at least for 30 years or however old your house is. But like my house, for example, you know, has fill dirt all around it that was dug up from several feet down. Well, how many... Thousands of years has that that clay, which is what it is at my house, even though I'm in Florida, how many thousands of years has that been submerged? I'm right on the banks of the Manatee River, so maybe I've got something in my soil that comes off the river that someone else doesn't. Very interesting things, but what that allows me to do then is supplement what I need. So let's get into that today. What is it going to take for you to build up nutrients in your soil? And you're going to hear as we go through the podcast that I learn a lot too. Again, I'm a guy that's more about the practical sides 
of lawn care, how to make a proper application, how to understand the label and how the label teaches you to make proper applications, what restrictions are on that label, what cautions are on that label, you know, does it need to be watered in? The label will have that. Should I do it um, on a day when it's going to rain in the next 48 hours? Yes or no. Uh, should I mow two days ahead of time, three days ahead of time? How long should I wait to mow after applying this product, right? These are all things that are on the label. And that's where I always focus my expertise. And I would say that I do very well. And then I work on after that and above that is how to actually make the applications properly, how to get the right pounds on the ground. Because you can follow the label or understand the label and you can understand all the science behind all the fertilizer that's in the bag. But if you don't make a proper application, none of it matters, right? It's the tip of the spear. All the science means nothing if you don't actually put the product down the way that it was intended to be put down. You know, and there's obviously some variability there because we're working with nature and weather. So there's all of those things to factor in. And so that gets into the mindset. And that's what I teach. Read the label, make proper applications, and let me teach you about mindset and understanding how to approach this because we're working with nature that we can't control. Right. The science stuff, I don't know as much about, you know. When it gets above, you know, how many pounds of nitrogen and how to calculate it. But again, that goes back to proper applications. It's over my head. You're going to see we get into some pretty cool stuff. We talk about different types of nitrogen and things like that. And there are some things that I have implemented over the last couple of years from advice from friends um, that you're going to hear. We kind of talk about in here a little bit, too. And we reformulated our fertilizers. That's why they're called crafted fertilizers now, because they've been reformulated and turned into something really special that has ingredients that you're just not going to get in store-bought stuff. And so I have made changes that way because I've had mentors along the way that have taught me things, pieces here and there that uh, I could do to improve things. And I've in implemented those. And now this conversation is a little bit of understanding even a little bit more. So pretty cool stuff. I'm getting pretty heavy here, a little deep today, but that's okay. Having a little bit of fun. It's winter. I hope you enjoy long podcasts because we're going to go for over an hour here. And I'm also going to break in a little bit in the middle a couple times to make some clarifications on a couple things or give my thoughts about how the discussion is going because I've kind of watched this now back. So I want to add a little bit of clarity or color in a couple spots and then we'll keep on going and I'll give you a wrap up here in the end. So with that, let's get to my soil testing podcast with my good partners from my soil. All right, guys, welcome back. Uh, well, at least Chris, welcome back. These are my partners from My Soil Predictive Nutrient Solutions. Always glad to have them on. And I figure this time of year we'll get started a little bit early talking about soil tests because we've got a lot of folks that have had soil testing data now for two, three, even four years. And so we're getting some different questions coming up. So I figured I'd have these guys on. They're the experts. Let's talk about it. But before we do that, let's have them introduce themselves, especially Matt, because this is his first time on the podcast. But Chris, we'll start with you. Introduce yourself and tell the folks who you are. Yeah, Chris Borgman here, uh, CEO at Predictive Nutrient Solutions. We're the owners of the MySoil brand. We also do the all the soil testing for yard mastery. So um, any of that testing, any of those results come through our lab here at Predictive Nutrient Solutions. So um, yeah, that's kind of my role. Um, what I do here is, um, you know, kind of manage the day-to-day the -day operations and all the company aspects of, you know, uh, what we do on the soil testing side and how we uh, manage APIs with uh, our partnership like Yard Mastery. And uh, I'll let Matt introduce himself. Yeah, great. So I'm Matt Williams. I'm the director of R&D uh, here at MySoil or Predictive Nutrient Solutions and also help out quite a bit with our soil lab uh, channel and do a lot of that background data that drives recommendations. Um, Full-time right now, I'm a tenured faculty member in plant and soil science, and I've been doing that for, for 16 years. It's 
kind of an interesting story. Chris and I have been working um, together somehow or another since I guess what the kids are calling the late 1900s now. <laughs> um, we started off working in industry and I, I did about a decade seasonally on golf courses before I, I kind of veered off into academia and graduate school and research um, at a land grant institution. So. Awesome. Yeah, so I kind of went, yeah, I went into industry and Matt kind of stayed on the the academic side and um, kind of coming around full circle now to where, you know, we've worked together a lot in the past few years now. So it's, it's pretty cool. We never expected to be doing that, I guess. And, um, you know, all the way from when we were, um, you know, helping with the LPGA tour events mm -hmm. and um, at Columbia Edgewater Country Club in Portland um, through, you know, being president, vice president of the turf grass program at Washington State University. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of, a lot of background with working with each other. And um, yeah, it's cool to see it all come full circle. Yeah, I love seeing the growth and seeing you guys, you know, you're really disrupting an industry, which is really cool. I always appreciate that type of thing. Um, I guess with that, let's just go back to the lab real quick about how many samples uh, can you not can you but how many samples did you run through in 2023? Do you have an idea of basics of how many samples you processed just in last year? Uh, yeah, I know what that is. We try to keep it a little bit close to, to, do you? to the All right, well, how about this? How many could you do? What's the max you could do in a, in a, in a month? If you, if you were maxed out, what's the max number of samples you could run? Uh, we can run, we can run up to 20 to 30,000 in a month. I'd say 20,000, um, okay. in, in a month. And obviously our, our SAMP, because of the way that our, um, seasonality is of our, of our business, a lot of that's obviously we do, you know, almost 60% of our business, you know, just like yard mastery mm -hmm. really the next four months here, um, is about 60% of our business. So obviously super heavy. Um, starting here in February, all the way really to June, um, it kind of flattens out, you know, around June and then picks up again in the fall um, for lawn and turf sampling, as well as like Southern um, garden sampling as well. So we don't just do uh, lawn and turf um, analysis. It's also gardens, um, trees, all, all anything that a DIYer would, you know, be growing ornamentals. So the way we built out our lab is like, we can really scale it by just continuing to add modules. So as our company continues to grow, we continue to add machines and modules. So by doing the way that we built it, it's very easy to scale our operation and what we're doing as mm -hmm. we continue to grow. Good. And I, the reason I wanted to point that out, so 25,000 samples a month is what you could do if you were at capacity. Obviously, yeah. you're building, you're not going to build too far above your capacity. I just want people to understand that, you know, you're not just a couple guys in the back of a pickup truck here. This is actually a legit lab. This is a, this is a good size operation that's now got several years under its belt. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's a serious thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we're running 10 to 12 employees um, most of the time. So that's, um, you know, we're vertically integrated here at Predictive Nutrient Solutions. And when I say that, um, you know, all the way from building the test kit to manufacturing the, the resin capsules that we use for analysis to owning the lab to all the research trials that we do with um, Soil Lab, where we take that data um, that we learn in, the, in those trials and implement it on our back end um, to help guide um, an, um guide recommendations to our consumers. We know that when we provide a recommendation, um, it is very likely that our consumer is going to get a response from our recommendation. And so 
being vertically integrated allows us to really control all aspects of our operation where, you know, a lot of other um, soil test facilities and the actual software and the guidance are all very separate. You know, you have the soil testing facility, then you have, you know, the software and then even another guidance component. We've vertically integrated all of those components at Predictive Nutrient Solutions. And that makes it really nice for me from the R&D standpoint, they're having that capacity because, you know, so much in my history, like when I was doing university research, you'd send your samples into a lab and because you're a researcher, they kind of took a back seat, right, to all the commercial growers. And so having this capacity here, whether I'm sending hundreds or thousands of soil tests on product recs, I'm never clogging up the lab and I'm still getting that quick turnaround, which is um, amazing for me, especially when we're doing those product, um, product release curve trials. Yeah. And I mean, it's really important for our customers. They're DIYers. They want everything now. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. all of our samples getting turned around and that includes ma- time in the mail, you know, getting results back in six to seven days on average is really incredible. So that's been good for us. And obviously, yes, you, you are vertically integrated. So you have the technology to import everything directly into our app, which, uh, you know, it's not possible in most other places. So that's obviously a huge convenience. Um, one of the things I wanted to get to today and why I've got you guys here is because with a lot of our folks being uh, on the program now for a couple of years, they're getting soil tests for a second or third year in a row. And that, or and by the way, guys, we don't recommend you test every year. If you want to, that's great. But you really only have to test every three years, really. It's not like your soil changes over time that much, that fast. But we do have people that do like to test every year, every two years. And what they're doing is they're taking one set of results from when they first started and they compare it to a set of results from when they last, yeah, your pretty background went out. <laughs> you guys, yeah. <laughs> for, any, for anybody watching, these guys look like they're doing the news. I was teasing them. <laughs> their screensaver went out. It went on bad mode. Anyway, um, but we got folks that are come in and they, they have two years worth of samples and they're comparing them and, and there's different results there. But the biggest one I'm seeing is they people seem disappointed. They the, the results from their first test two years ago doesn't really look like it varies that much from their second test that they just did two years later. But in between there, they've been on my program. They've been fertilizing every five to six weeks. They're using biostimulants. They're, they're, you know, they're killing weeds out there doing everything they should do. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, did I do all this for nothing? Um, Now, the first thing I always tell people is how did your lawn look? And usually they go, well, look great. Okay. So you're obviously the lawn is using some of this stuff. That's part of it, but there's a little bit more to it. And Chris, you have a philosophy that you kind of, or an approach that you've gone through with me before that I think is a good way to set the baseline. And then what we'll do is we'll actually go through each nutrient that we track and we'll kind of just talk about those and can those stick in the soil? Cause that's really what it comes down to. People are expecting that they're applying all this stuff and that the things they need to stick in the soil will stick and that they should see those things sticking in the soil. But again, there's a whole cycle there of being used up and the, and obviously the lawn is growing and all that. But before we get there, let's just talk about that approach. So Chris, why don't you kind of go through that just a little bit to get started with that? Yeah, and it's not really my approach. It's been around for, you know, a number of years, really out of agriculture for the most part, where we can kind of, you know, bend these programs a little bit into kind of three different programs or approaches and how we manage nutrients. Um, And that's really a a build program, a maintenance program, or a drawdown program. So there's kind of three three approaches to nutrient management that um, that we kind of focus on. And 
Um, it really depends on, you know, the type of um, the type of client or user or um, DIYer that um, and how they want to uh, manage uh, their nutrient management um, on their property. And so just quickly to, to like high level, go over what, you know, uh, drawdown program looks like versus a maintenance versus a build. So, um, you know, a drawdown program would be I have tons of nutrient in my soil, um, or a specific nutrient that's already um, optimal or exceeding the optimal range, say phosphorus, calcium, some of these magnesium, some of these other nutrients uh, could be potassium also. So anytime you have an optimal or high level of a nutrient, we're going to be on what's called a drawdown program, right? So if you look, think of it as your bank account, um, you have plenty of this nutrient in the bank. So we're not going to apply, we're not going to spend money on that nutrient. Those soils are providing that nutrient to us, or you've been applying it, you know, in excess and just didn't know it until you soil tested. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to draw down on those specific nutrients. And some of those nutrients like phosphorus may be inherently high in that particular soil. So it, you might just never apply it and it still doesn't lower, but uh, you can't really do anything, you know, about that. That's just kind of the native soil that, that you have. So a drawdown program is going to be, we have excess, we have optimal or excess of a specific nutrient. So we're going to allow those to draw down over time. We're not going to apply them. A build program would be the instant where all of your nutrient levels or a specific nutrient is below the optimal range. And we're going to do larger applications to try and build those nutrients in the soil. Um, now that becomes a little bit more challenging in a sandy soil compared to, you know, a clay or a loam type soil um, that has the holding capacity to hold on to those, those nutrients, which we'll get into a little bit more. So on the build program, we may focus on specific nutrient levels and, and building those up with higher application levels. In the instance that Alan's talking about, it's more of a maintenance program where you've um, you have these nutrient levels. You did an initial test. Um, you have those levels. They may be a little bit low. Um, and then what that did is that initial test selected the right product, the right nutrient ratio for your particular soil. So you have the right product. You're applying the right ratio of nutrients but you're not seeing it in, increase, you know, up into the optimal range or above where you were. So why, why, what are the instances that can be? And really what's happening is we're feeding the plant the exact nutrients that they need and they're using those nutrients as they're growing and you're almost perfectly matching the, those plant demands. So we're not building per se those nutrients in the soil, but the lawn looks good. Um, you have real control over your, your growth of your lawn, your color, your look, but you're not building those soil levels in excess um, to have uh, reserves, but you're perfectly matching the growth demands and what that plant actually needs because you know the nutrient ratios uh, from your soil test that, you, that that plant needed in that particular soil. Yeah, when I think about the maintenance program, I think about it that just like living paycheck to paycheck, you know, you're getting in and you're putting out, but you're never building that retirement account. And I think that's when we're thinking of that, that build program, you got to think like for nitrogen, just talking about a specific nutrient, it's tough to build. But if we wanted to, we really just need to build that organic matter up because that's where that, that nitrogen is kind of hiding out, right? Out in reserve. So if we're building, and so 
building organic matter is a part of my programs, but it takes a while, right? It's not like, I think people expect that, well, my lawn looks good immediately because it does. If you apply nitrogen to a lawn, it's going to look good in 10 days. It's just going to happen. But it's not like the underlying soil organic material is going to build in a year or even two, right? How long can something like that take? Yeah, you know, I think that's a product to scale, Alan, but in a lawn situation, you know, you're looking at years, you know, that's a, it's a long-term investment. And just like you might be applying a fertilizer every three, four, five weeks, putting an organic out every three, four, five weeks with it, or a fertilizer like yours where it's built in, you know, that's going to help to slowly build it. Um, but where could you see significant changes? You know, five years uh, plus is probably what you're looking at, but I'm going to just argue that the number's great, but I just always want to be pushing more organic matter. I can't think of uh, a situation where more organic matter is bad in any turf situation, um, especially at the homeowner level. Yeah. And that's why we recommend biostimulants and humic. And, and again, we have Bionite in our, in our fertilizers that has natural organic materials, things like that. So yes, that's always been the underlying of all my programs is let's try to build up the organic material. But I just want to set people's expectations correct that it's like, this is a long-term process. You're going to live in your house for, if it's your forever home, 25, 35 years, maybe pass it down to your kids. So this is one of those things where over time you're taking care of it. The other thing I don't think we we take into account as much is how was that lawn neglected before you got there? Or if it's new construction, what is it even on top of that they dug, you know, from they dug like in my house, they uh, they dug retention ponds. So the soil around our houses is actually clay that was dug out of the retention ponds. And so it can take a long time for that to to build up and get any kind of any kind of value in it. Now, it's high in phosphorus because it's Florida. But anyway, so I think those are a lot of things to consider. Um, back to the drawdown programs, or I guess in, in general, like in our app, because you guys are the ones that help me with this. So in our app, when somebody takes the, the their, their test, it comes back to you guys, and then the app will give them a custom program that tells them, here's the fertilizers from the yard mastery line that you should be using according to what your soil test says. So in that, in that thinking, there's some drawdown, there's some maintenance, and there could be some build too. Now, again, I, I don't, you're right. I'm not, we don't go into these build programs. I'm not, I'm, people think I tell them to throw down a lot, but I'm not somebody that's saying put out a pound and a half of nitrogen. I'm not doing that. My, my law, my, my programs are actually fairly low nitrogen overall, but we are doing some drawdown and some maintenance in there because if you have high phosphorus, for example, in your test, then you, the, the app is not going to recommend more phosphorus. It's going to recommend fertilizers without that. So we're drawing down the phosphorus or attempting to, but we're also maintaining the other stuff or building it up. Is that kind of the, the best way to look at it? Yeah. And, you know, you have products like stress blend, you know, a seven zero twenty, where you're going to probably be pushing more of the build on your, on your potassium, you know, as you continue, you know, to apply that type of product, you know, on obviously like flagship, like the 2406, you know, that's not a big potassium builder and we wouldn't wreck that, you know, if you needed a lot of potassium, we'd, you know, wreck the, the stress blend or a higher potassium um, products. So yeah, there's just multiple things happening in those programs that, you know, that we've, you know, automated and obviously different soils are going to react, you know, differently, a he uh, you know, heavy sand soil compared to a clay, you know, you just, you don't have that holding capacity, you know, in that soil. And I think as people, um, DIYers get more comfortable with applying fertilizers and, um, work, in with products, you know, they may dabble more in the simples, like just the SOP, you know, for, for build, if they want to build potassium, if they see their levels not coming up, it's okay. If you want to, you know, build your potassium levels and that, 
product that you have even has, you know, coated potassium, which is going to protect it, you know, from being lost because um, mm-hmm. it's pretty mobile, especially in sandy soils. So it's going to protect some of that. So you can kind of build your potassium levels, even in a sandier soil, you know, with that type of product. And, you know, all these products have different components and I'm also, you know, the coatings and inhibitors and things that try to hold nutrient, you know, in place for that plant. Um, to be there when that when that plant needs it versus losing it, you know, nitrate to leaching or the off target movement of, of phosphorus as well. Yeah, that's why I mean, every one of our fertilizers, 50% of the nitrogen is is coated. So it it holds it. Um, we do that as a rule. And so yeah, we're, we're definitely trying to do what we can. I, I, I care more about the visual results. And so that's why I go back into telling folks, look, your lawn is using a lot of this stuff too. And um, I guess I'm kind of getting the analogy of like the stomach, right? And the gut biome, you know, if your gut biome is off and I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I just thought about it. If your gut biome is off, you can't absorb the nutrients. That'd be like that sandy soil. It just, it just flows right through you. But if you have good gut biome, if you have good microbe uh, activity in your stomach and everything is on balance, then the, the nutrients can absorb. So it's kind of that same way, but it's still a lot of it's eliminated and a lot of it you use in your daily life. It just gets used up. Your body just needs it. So that goes back to blood testing. So All right, I wanted to break in here real quick. So that was a pretty neat way to look at it. And as Chris was saying, there's build, draw down and maintain. And I guess he says that's a pretty normal way. I to me I'm like, "Ooh, that's awesome." But Chris says no. That's like a, an old, I guess a lot of people that do uh, sports turf and things like that or high levels of turf, they they all look at things that way. So that's nothing new. He didn't invent that. <laughs> but to me, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And he's talked about that to me before, but it didn't really click in the way that it did this time. And that's the other thing. That's why I would say repetition is a key learning, right? I've actually had this very similar discussion with these guys a couple of years ago on the podcast, and we went through some of the same stuff. It was one that we did with Ron Henry. I'll link it below. But it didn't necessarily stick in my head. It didn't. It didn't click for me. You know, you're going to find the older you get, the harder it is to retain things. But now we went through it again. And so now I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. So things clicked this time for me when that build, draw down and maintain. But the thing that I want to stress is when you guys are watching this is number one is uh, you can be doing both at the same time. You can be building nitrogen and potassium while drawing down on phosphorus. So you can be doing that at the same time. We talk about that in the podcast a little bit. I just wanted to reiterate that. So that's why a lot of my fertilizers have an O for the second number. If you know there's three numbers on the bags of fertilizer, that's the macronutrients, that's the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, right? And that's what we talk about here in the podcast. Those are the big three. They're the ones that are really going to bring you the biggest difference in the lawn overall when it comes to health and vigor. The thing about it is, and we have thousands and thousands of soil tests back now, is we can see that phosphorus is not a problem in a large portion of the country. I actually did a podcast last year where we went over the high phos in Florida, and we did it by region in, in Florida. I'll link to that below. Really, really interesting study that I did just understanding Florida and phosphorus. We have phosphorus mines here and stuff, so I was interested in it. But apparently from what we see or what we do see across, there is a lot of phosphorus everywhere. So you'll, and I'm not the only one that knows that. That's why if you go to Home Depot or Ace right now and you get Scott's fertilizer, it's going to have an O as the second number two on most of the, the cases, unless you're getting something called starter fertilizer. But most of the Scott stuff, most Pennington stuff, it's going to be somewhere like that 2006 or 1808, you know, that they're going to have an O in the middle, no phos. And so you're on drawdown. And so that's why we have those fertilizers. So we know a lot of you are going to want to be drawing down on FOSS, right? 
Now, you don't have to be concerned if you're foss, if you have naturally high foss in your soil. It's just it is what it is. I've heard that you can bag your clippings and that will help it go down. That makes sense to me, but I've never actually tried it. Um, but either way, you want to return your clippings to the lawn because of the proteins that are in those, which is another thing I learned from this podcast. So anyway, lots of cool stuff. I just wanted you guys to know you can be on both and you can kind of be thinking about things that way. And then the other thing I want to say is there is no perfect fertilizer. You're going to kind of talk about that a little bit here too, is there isn't a fertilizer that's going to be able to fit your situation perfectly when you look at all of the elements that we're tracking. So you just want to, by getting the soil test and then having our custom program that comes through, you're getting a few steps closer though. You're getting much closer actually to getting the proper uh, fertilization ratios that your lawn actually needs based on the soil. But it's not perfect. I only have five fertilizers. I don't, I don't have a hundred different formulations. I have five. And those five have been formulated for what they are with NPK uh, over the years to match what we have seen coming back on the soil tests in general. Overall, we have stats. We look at those types of things, right? And so that's where those five formulations come from. 1776 being a fun one, but still fitting and playing a good role. And uh, so those are, and, and by the way, I didn't invent that. A lot of those same formulations come everywhere else. Although I'll say we're the first to ever really push high potassium fertilizers. And uh, we've seen great results with that because we include that sulfate of potash magnesia magnesia so we can get some magnesium in there so you know good good blends that just work and uh there you go trying to uh build draw down or maintain sometimes you can be doing both all right let's get back to the podcast always interesting analogies i think what i'd like to do now is just let's go through some of the elements on the actual test i just have one of mine pulled up Let's just go through some of the elements on the test and just talk about how difficult would it be if somebody wanted to get on this build program, right? This program where they're building these nutrients, which I don't necessarily know. Let me just say that before we go. I don't know if that's the best thing to do either. To have your your soil just if if in the other like the other extreme would be to have your soil just bulked up above optimal for everything. I don't think that's necessarily good either, right? It just depends on the nutrient. I mean, if you have plenty of K or something or calcium, you're not really, you know, I, there's not really an issue. If you have way too much nitrogen or phosphorus, you know, some of those that cause, you know, issues in the environment, definitely. I mean, I think you're okay to build nutrients like, you know, potassium or calcium, magnesium, some of the micros um, as well. Yeah, I guess I'd say the same thing. Those nutrients that we have some environmental sensitivity concerns with are really nitrogen and phosphorus, right? And so being on a maintenance program with those and seeing those a little bit low and just doing the put and take approach is probably the right approach. Not trying to build everything, like you said. Absolutely. And I yeah, do I want folks to understand that on our soil test and the yard mastery test, we run our phosphorus uh, optimal ranges very low because in established turf, you very rarely see phosphorus deficiencies. Um, sometimes in new, um, newly seeded or sodded turf, you can, um, but we, we really run those numbers very low. So um, our range, we try to keep that, you know, very low to like the minimum you need of, of phosphorus. So that's a, a thing to note as well as if you are low on phosphorus on the yard mastery test or the mysoil test, then you probably are low and in need of phosphorus because we try to run that um, pretty low on that, that optimal range because we very rarely see those um, deficiencies in established turf. 
Yeah, so that goes back to uh, when people look at, they compare our test to someone else's. It's really about what our standard is. Our standards are a little bit different. They're based on your expertise and what you guys see. And that's why I partner with you. So that could be why sometimes, you know, one test shows a little different than another, right? Just because the standard yeah. that they're measuring against is different. Yeah, it's a different, they're different methods. We use the ion exchange method. So we're looking at, you know, what's available in the soil to the plant at that time. And then once that's absorbed from solution, what's the ability of the soil to continue to provide nutrient to the plant? So we're getting those two measurements. Um, and then we match those measurements that we get in that particular soil to uh, a crop demand for a specific um, for a specific crop. So in turf, you know, or corn, every one of them at peak uptake time has a different demand for nutrient on the on the soil. So you think of crops like, you know, corn, it, it requires 15 pounds of K2O per acre per day at peak uptake time. That's a huge demand. And a lot of times the soil doesn't have that available and can't release that. And that's really the key to our measurement. And it's the same with turf grass. It could be in the soil, but if it's not available one and two, that uh, soil can't release it and um, in the fashion to match those uptake demands, then you're going to have a deficiency. And that's really the key to the resin test that we do is understanding what that plant's actually seen and can that soil release to match those uptake demands, you know? So in cool season in the spring, you have a huge demand on the soil, right? For mm -hmm. specific nutrients, right? So we're measuring, you know, can your that particular person's soil provide available nutrient and release it to match those plant demands, or is that plant going to experience a deficiency? And so then that, and then that translates into the test and translates into the results. So you know how to go ahead and maintain from there. Right. So, so we're predicting and prescribing. So that's a, two of the highest levels um, in data complexity is, you know, predicting and um, subscribing the right, the right product. Okay. So let's go through then each of these elements and let's just talk about how hard are they to build? We we'll use the word build. I use the word stick because I think that's, you know, <laughs> easier to yeah. understand, but let's use that. So if I was going to go and I wanted to just, I just wanted to build, I just wanted to be bodybuilder, which again, I consider my programs already. I use a lot of bodybuilding type analogies because I think my programs are like that already, but they're more bodybuilding. In other words, thickening the grass, people on my programs, their lawns get thicker, but now we're talking about the soil. So if somebody wanted to build these different nutrients, let's just talk about how difficult would it be or not, or, or whatever. So I guess we'll start, Matt already mentioned it, but let's just talk a little bit about nitrogen. Why and in fact, some tests don't even put nitrogen on there because they just don't want the confusion. So let's just talk about a little bit, Matt. Let's tell me about nitrogen and its volatility and things like that. Sure. So, yeah, nitrogen isn't reported all the time um, because it's so transformative. Um, of all the nutrients that we have, nitrogen goes through more transformations in the soil than any other one. Sulfur might threaten to be pretty close to as complex. But there's a lot of different loss pathways. Um, but if you look at the results, do you have the results on your phone right now? I do. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see two different nitrogen measurements on there, ammonium and nitrate numbers. And so those are the two available forms of nitrogen. Ultimately, most of our plants want to take up nitrate. About 90% of all the nitrogen taken up across plants and across the globe is taken up as nitrate. And ammonium will turn to nitrate. Um, but you're talking about stickiness and building um, of those two, ammonium and nitrate. Ammonium's pretty sticky. I can actually put some ammonium out when soil temperatures are low and it's going to stick around over winter up in the northern tier where we're at. Um, if you put urea out, urea is not going to be 
noted on that test, right? Because it's not ammonium, it's not nitrate. I mean, urea is kind of an interesting one to me um, because like chemically it's organic. It has carbon hooked to it, even though we manufacture it. And so that urea is going to act more like a compost, a biosolid, something like that. And that's going to be your build fraction, right? The soil test isn't going to report it, but it's going to slowly convert to that nitrate or so that ammonium and nitrate. Um, so if you were trying to kind of bulk up and build, coming back to kind of what I said earlier, we really just need to be focusing on building that organic fraction. And I just think doing that directionally and always focusing on building <clears throat> that uh, organic fraction is going to help your soil be stickier. And as you get more organic matter, it's going to hold more of that ammonium as well. So more of that ammonium is going to stick around so it can convert to that nitrate to match those uptake uh, demands when they come on, especially spring and fall uh, up here uh, in the in the PNW. So to make sure I understand this right, and I, I will say to the audience too, the, we're getting into the stuff that I don't understand. I told these guys before we even got into this, I don't understand what makes, I'm not a scientist like they are. I don't understand what makes stuff sticky and all that. And so you said urea nitrogen is a way to start building, is a good source to, if you want to build your nitrogen, urea is a good source to utilize? Any organic and to some extent, actually urea. So a more complex organic than urea is probably better for building. Okay. But I just kind of took you stepwise through it. If I put, I don't know, a compost, a turkey manure, a biosolid, a humic, any of that, that's going to convert to simpler organic products like a urea. That urea is going to convert to ammonium. Now we're plant available. And then that ammonium is going to convert to nitrate. Now it's super plant available. Plants mm -hmm. taken in water, taken in nitrate. It's, it's feeding itself. Um, and the more organics we feed and build, the more efficient our whole system does that full conversion of organic to nitrate. Um, so I guess coming back to your question, if I'm building, I'm probably not using urea. Urea can move in the soil a little bit, not as much as nitrate. Um, I'm probably focusing on more complex organics to build. Okay. Um, and knowing that those are going to convert to plant available forms throughout the season. Over time, right? Yeah. That's like your super slow release mechanism and storage for nitrogen. Yeah. I think of it like my retirement account, you know, I'm putting it in, I'm putting it in, I'm putting it in, and then eventually it's going to start bleeding out to me a little at a time. Okay. So yeah, because all of our programs have humic, which helps. And then again, we talked about all of them have biosolids, all of our fertilizers, but we also have a natural base fertilizer that's going to have more of that like chicken compost, or it's actually feather meal, bone meal, that kind of stuff. So, uh, and we're actually expanding that line too. So maybe we'll, I'll, I'll work with you guys. And if we want to do that, if we want to create a build type program that uh, is centered around nitrogen, we can talk about some of those because I'm always interested in doing other things too. So... Okay, so another thing I wanted to talk about here, and this goes back to mindset, when you're thinking about approaching your lawn after you have a soil test, we gotta be careful with build programs if you're if you're trying to build something. I don't want you to think that I'm trying to get out here and say, you can double up on the apps that I recommend. I'm actually not for that. You gotta keep in mind that what Matt said there is the best way to be on a build program for nitrogen especially is to be applying organic materials to the soil. So I don't want you guys going out there and putting down a pound and a half of nitrogen on the lawn um, from one of my ferts or anybody's ferts thinking that you're on a build program with that. What you really need to do is stick to the regular program that I have, what they're calling a maintain program, which we know works because your lawns turn freaking green after we do an app, right? And it stays that way, you know. So they're good programs. The lawn uses what we're putting down. 
but we also have that organic component in the fertilizer. That's the build program. So it's actually built in. That's why you have that bionite in there. You know, um, bionite is literally the the Florida version of malorganite, a biosolid. It has got um, it's all it's the microbes. That's what it is. It's dead microbes is essentially, and then they're cooked. It's dead cooked microbes. Great way to add carbon to the soil. Great way to add those organic materials to the soil. Microbes love to feed on that in the soil. Living microbes, they love to eat that up, right? So that's the build part of it. So I just want to just reiterate there, don't go out there and just start hammering down too much. Please don't do that. The build program is mainly an organic component that you put in. By the way, biostimulants help with that too. That's the organic uh, component that you put in so more of your nitrogen can be retained over time. So I just wanted to reiterate that. Don't go hammering things out too much too fast thinking you're going to build especially when it comes to nitrogen because we know nitrogen drives the bus all right let's go next to phosphorus i know this one sticks in soils in fact this is the one that i see the most where people are high uh, in florida it's already high i mean they have phosphorus mines like 10 miles from where i'm sitting right now so <laughs> florida is not a concern there but just let's talk about the phosphorus in general, what what's good, bad, ugly, you know, that kind of stuff. I guess I can, if you want to start good, bad, ugly, I'll start off with the bad and ugly and maybe give Chris the good. Um, you know, <laughs> we talked about nitrogen just now, nitrate in particular, and then we've got phosphates. And we mentioned that there's ecological concerns with both of those. And so, like you mentioned, having that high phosphorus and being on a drawdown situation, that's where I am too. My my lawn is just through the roof in phosphorus. I've never applied phosphorus to it, even at seeding. Um, there's just enough there. Uh, and so what is that concern? If we get these nitrates and phosphates in surface waters, it can lead to those algal blooms, depleting oxygen and hurting aquatic uh, organisms. And so we're really trying to avoid that. And our test ranges for phosphorus are lower um, to kind of uh, address that that environmental concern. So that's why we're worried about phosphorus, but it is really sticky in the soil, right? It doesn't move very far. It sticks around. And so how does it move off site? If it does, erosion or uh, uh, misapplication of the fertilizers is really how it how it's going to move off site. So we just need to be careful when we're applying our nitrogen and phosphorus sources to keep them um, to keep them on the site. So I'm in a, in a drawdown situation, but maybe you can talk about phosphorus a little bit more. I'm in a drawdown also. And I think I, th I would say, I would say if, you know, 60% of the samples that we see are probably in a drawdown mode for phosphorus. And it's probably all because of Allen and Malorganite. Um, <laughs> that's probably true. That's kind of, I mean, it's kind of funny, but I mean, Malorganite obviously, you know, was a, a big thing early on and people loved it. It worked really good, turned grass really green, but everybody that was on malorganite, like their phosphorus levels are super high. And usually we can tell if they, they were on malorganite for, you know, <laughs> some period of time. Um, but no, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we run our phosphorus levels, um, our optimal levels, very low. Uh, we've done a lot of trials. Uh, Matt and I did some research for the Northwest Turfgrass Association at one point where we actually, um, on golf course greens and fairways, we actually um, measured nutrient levels and the way we did that, both in the tissue and in the soil uh, on the golf green, uh, we actually used um, uh, one of those lint removers that you use on your clothes. 
Um, and so, uh, we had an electric one of those. So we collect the, the tissue from the, from the green, and then we'd pull a soil core every place we collected tissue. So we had the exact measurement, uh, in the tissue and in the soil of all of our, all of our nutrient levels. And what we found was you can run phosphorus very, very low in established um, turf and you will not see a deficiency. And so that really guides us on our, our phosphorus stuff is some of the background data and trials that, um, that we've run in the past. And so we do probably run them a little bit lower um, than some other soil test methods do uh, for okay. optimal ranges. But, um, you know, if you soil test and we just did a, on soil lab, we just did um you know, is a starter fertilizer required if you are, um, if you're seeding, sodding, sprigging, you know, everybody says, put, use a starter fertilizer. Well, if your phosphorus, if your soil is already high in phosphorus, you know, do you need to use a starter? And, uh, we kind of discovered that, um, you know, you probably don't need to use a starter if you're already high in phosphorus in that soil, um, you probably don't need to use a high phosphorus starter fertilizer. And so that was an interesting study that we did mm -hmm. on soil lab that, mm -hmm. that people can check out. Um, you know, we did that in a native soil that was already optimal in phosphorus. And then we did it in a straight sand soil where there wasn't enough phosphorus. And you can see that, yeah, it was required. We did need that phosphorus uh, mm -hmm. in that starter fertilizer. So coming back to the stickiness and, and the good, if you are low in FOSS, you can put a pretty good pile of it out there as long as you're leaving it in your lawn and keeping it there and that you're going to get that build program. Um, it's kind of something that's interesting about FOSS to me is it's so immobile in the soil. It doesn't move very far, very right. fast, like an eighth of an inch from the pro in a season, like very little movement. And so in phosphorus, the one unique thing, and I really saw this on golf courses, is you can run into what we call positional deficiencies in phos. And so there's plenty of phosphorus in your soil profile, but there might not be enough in that root zone early season, especially spring. And so you'll especially see this with poa or annual bluegrass. It gets shallow rooted and it gets purple in the spring, and then it just grows right out of it. Well, what happens is those roots are growing down into that phosphorus that's already mm -hmm. in your soil. Yeah. So you can have nutrient stratification also. That's why we like to focus, you know, just where the roots are at and like get a inch. in our sample. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So we want to nip that zero to four, zero to six inches is really, you know, what we're focusing on. You can have stratification of specific, you know, the deeper you go, you're probably, you start to limit nutrients. Most of your nutrients are going to be in that top, you know, four inches, six inches of the soil. Yeah. And so. I can see that when I pull samples, like I just, so yesterday we just did a soil test in my neighbor's lawn because we're starting to do content for that. And I can see that when I push the cord uh, sampling tool down in there, I can see there's an area of clay, then here's some topsoil. I mean, there's a sandy area. I can, that's just in four to six inches in his lawn. I can yeah. see some of that. So, so I want to just reiterate then. So phosphorus, like, so I'm looking at my sample here. That's one's from my lawn. So optimal range is five to 11 parts per million. I'm at 96.6. So I'm way up there. Now, wow. but that's naturally existing phosphorus. So it's not going to wash out and hurt my ecosystem, right? I'm just not going to apply more. That's kind of the idea. Right. Yeah. That's so I don't want people to panic if they have high phosphorus. It's not like they have to go out and actively try to bring it down. You just don't add more. That's kind of the idea. Absolutely. Yeah, it's different, you know, in agriculture where you're rotating crops, you have exposed soil, you have wind movement, right? That's really where the issues come in, not an established, you know, perennial turf type stand, you know, that's not where the issues with phosphorus typically are. It's usually misapplication of phosphorus is really going to be the thing that um, leads to off-target movement.
Yeah. And we, you know, um, that's the thing. We have a living root in our soil year round. Obviously, our farms right. are much different than that. So, right. um, and I think in Florida, I'm pretty, you can sell fertilizers with fossa in them, but it's pretty rare. That's why everything is like a 1608 or a 2404 or 2406, because they just know people don't need the fossa. So, okay, good one. Let's go on yeah. to the next one. Another big one, potassium. I love potassium. I love, I like talking about it because it, it relates to people's bodies as well. We know what potassium does in our bodies, So it kind of makes sense with the lawn, but uh, in the sample I'm looking at, my potassium is low. Again, this is a Florida sample, but let's talk about that. What is, uh, how, how hard is it or difficult or easy is it to get potassium to stick or build? Potassium is really sticky. Um, it sticks to organic matter. It sticks to clay. Um, and so you can put a lot of uh, potassium out at once and it's going to stick around for you. Um, I hate to use all the farming examples, but that's where a lot of the research, you know, is really bred from that I'm used to, that I'm, that I'm familiar with. There was a study in corn production and they put out potassium every single year for 10 years. And they put that same amount of potassium out once for that 10 year period. And there's no yield difference. And so you can really put out a lot of potassium and build it up and then just go back into drawdown mode um, with potassium because it's so sticky. Um, if you've got a really sandy soil, there might not be enough seats at the dinner table for your for your potassium. Um, and so you might want to think about just putting that out seasonally. The other thing I love about potassium is just kind of how miraculous it is with stress tolerance, right? It just helps build that that stress tolerance into your plants. So um, my potassium is like right at the top edge of optimal. And I just put out potassium every year to maintain that that high level of, of potassium in the soil, knowing it's not going anywhere. And knowing that's going to help my turf withstand those stresses, whether that's winter damage in our area or drought tolerance. You know, we get the fortune of both extremes here in the PNW. Another thing I was thinking about during this podcast is we want to, because uh, Chris or uh, Matt mentioned it a few times, is a lot of the the studies and analogies they use are with farming. And I think some farming analogies are excellent, but we got to think about something. I've been watching the Millennial Farmer channel now for several years, and I've actually learned a lot about farming and interesting things. Like, do you know they use tenacity, mesotrion, uh, in their, in their uh, fields? And I think they mostly use it for uh, pre-emergent properties, but they definitely use it in their fields. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and, and I, no, actually, I think they use it for resistance. I think there may be some, I'll have to look it up, but I, I do know they use mesotrion because one time when I was up there visiting him a couple years ago and we did a project together, they were, they had it out and we were reading the labels on their farm products. It was really interesting. So if you're somebody that understands exactly why farmers that do corn use mesotrion, tweet me or, or leave me a comment. I remember at the time he told me, so I may have said it right or wrong. I don't know, but Either way, pretty cool stuff, but farmers do things a little bit differently. We've got to think about the crop they're growing. We'll think about corn farmers, right? They do not, number one, have a living root in their soil year-round. Their crop is planted in the spring, and then it's harvested in the fall, and all winter, it's empty, open ground. So that's a whole different thing when it comes to loss of nutrients. Whereas us, we have a lawn that has a living root in it all year-round, and even in the winter, if your lawn goes dormant, the roots are still active. There is still, there, and when I say active, they're still there in the soil. The The soil life is still there um, in some degree, in some capacity, right? It doesn't die off. It doesn't escape. And all of that helps to hold in nutrients and things like that. So we look at our crop too because it grows year-round. It's a perennial crop, whereas the way they treat corn, it's an annual crop. So it, it, it needs, in other words, corn needs enough nutrient to get going for one year, do its thing, grow, right? And, you, and we talk about that in the podcast with the potassium loads Chris was talking about, which was really interesting. Grows for the year, 
and then they it pushes out the corn stalks and then they harvest them and then it's done. That's it. It's an annual, right? So there's nothing left. So it's almost like the farmer every year, they'll soil test, but every year they're putting in one year's worth of fertilizer at the very beginning. Because what I've seen from the millennial farmer is I've never seen him do any fertilizer outside of early, early spring. I've never seen him go in like July and, and fertilize. And that's because the corn is so tall by then. So I'm pretty sure they put all their stuff in in one big giant app early, early in the spring. And they probably disc it in or, or whatever. That's a different philosophy than us, right? Because they're growing an annual crop. They just boost that baby from the beginning. I'm sure they use some sort of release curves or something to understand how uh, how to win and release these things as the corn grows, you know, and it cycles through. But they're just one big fur app early in the spring. Whereas us, ours is year-round, and the same grass that's there last year is there this year. Now, it cycles. It has root cycling and things like that. So it does it's like the same exact grass blades there every time. But it's the same lawn. It's the same organism overall. And so we're not going to give it one big blast of fur. We're going to feed it across the season. And that's why we also have to maintain it. It's a crop that has to be maintained. We're not harvesting anything from it. We're just maintaining it. So it's just a different approach. So I don't want, again, I go back to, I don't want you guys to go out there and think that when I got my soil test back, I have to go out and correct every single one of these problems with one miracle application. You don't have to do that. That is not the way we do it. We do it over time and not, and it doesn't all have to come immediate. You know, let's say you have a nitrogen and a potassium deficiency. Sometimes you're going to put down a fertilizer that has higher nitrogen and, and a little bit of potassium. And other times you're going to put down a fertilizer that has smaller amount of nitrogen, but more potassium. You're kind of feeding it in just like a human. You know, sometimes you eat steak, sometimes you eat chicken, sometimes you eat salad, sometimes you eat them together. Um, you know, it depends. And so that's kind of how that goes. So don't think you're fixing everything right away. Don't panic. The other thing is your lawn's been there for years before you got there, possibly, you know, unless it's brand new. And if that's the case, other lawns in your neighborhood have probably been there before you, and they're healthy, they're thriving. So the grass can be fine. There are, there are examples everywhere of neglected lawns that look decent, right? So, and that's because of proper mowing and proper watering mostly. But the nitrogen, the, the potassium, doing the soil test and adding in these nutrients, that's what just gets your lawn to that next level of green, that next level of thick, that next le level of vigor to make it look healthy and better. And that's what we want. We want the best looking lawn on the block. Speaking of that, are you guys dormant right now or is your lawn still green? Uh, my, my lawn, yeah, my lawn's like, it's still green. It's pretty green for right now. I mean, we had, we had about two weeks of hard, hard cold, you know, like zero degree, um, single digit stuff, you mm -hmm. know, up into the, you know, the teens. Um, but yeah, I would say like, we're, as far as dormancy, we're kind of like barely dormant. Yeah, our soil temps are like 43 degrees right now. <laughs> I saw some grass growing, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it came like snowing off. It gets 50 degrees, soil temps hit above 40, and I'm just now starting to see growth. So we're just kind of yeah, breaking dormancy right now. And yeah, I, you guys are... Grass, grass is green, though, yeah. It's such a cool part of the country because you're so far north, but you don't have that climate like North Dakota does, you know, or Montana. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. If, yeah. If you, I mean, if you haven't been, it's really like a banana belt a little bit um, yeah. in our area. You know, if you like just look at the map of the U.S., you think, yeah, oh, it's got to be like North Dakota, you know, and Washington state. But I mean, northern Washington state is, but like where we are, um, southeastern washington and along the columbia river you get more of a, a banana belt typically um in that area so it's not like northern washington um can be for sure 
And then on the potassium side, um, uh, I'm a big proponent of potassium. I've just seen such dramatic changes in potassium, and it's been a very underestimated nutrient for a long time, um, not just in turf, but um, in agriculture as well. And um, that's one of the areas where our technology really shines on, you know, not only is it available, but can that soil release it to match the demands that that, that plant has on that soil. And that's really, you know, where the resins um, really shine in our test. And um, if you think about, you know, traditional testing, um, they take a soil into the lab, they dry it, they grind it. And what happens is when they dry it and they grind the soil, especially with clays, they um, dry and it opens up those clay layers. And then they do a chemical, they add a chemical. And what that does is it starts to pull nutrient out of those layers that will never be available to the plant. So you're over measuring or overestimating the actual availability of nutrients to the plant when we when we change the chemical and physical characteristic of a soil. So um, just to kind of tie in the deficiencies and what we see and what you might not see on another test and why we might wreck uh, a specific nutrient or ratio of nutrients that another test might, I think we have some um, very big advantages in our, in our methodology and it's universal across all soil types. So from Florida to to Washington state, it doesn't matter. You know, our test is going to account for your soil's pH, the organic matter level, CEC, all of those component components and combine that measurement into one, um, one result and ma which makes it very dynamic. And it also makes it very easy to, you know, relate to our customers so that they can make, um, an actionable application. Yeah. There's no additional math they have to do. Uh, to to kind of figure things out. So yeah. let's move on to some of the other macros that we really never talk about. That's so funny. We always talk about the big three, but the rest of these macros, they kind of just get shoved to the back, but they're super important, especially the next one, which is sulfur. So talk a little bit about on my test. Again, I'm looking at my sulfur's high here. This is a Florida sample, but talk about what sulfur, the importance of it. And then, you know, can that one stick and good or bad that way? So sulfur, sulfur and nitrogen have a lot in common. Um, you know, nitrogen I mentioned earlier is taken up as nitrate. You're looking at your soil tests there, SO4, that's sulfate. It's pretty transformative as well. Um, the soils that I deal with mostly um, are going to be really low in sulfur. It, it's mobile. It moves. It's like nitrate in that regard. Um, and it's really cool to me, uh, nitrogen and sulfur actually end up having an uptake synergy. And so when you've got both of them uh, in adequate or optimal amounts, the uptake of both is enhanced. And when we enhance that uptake, we see that drawdown, right? And so for us, we see, I see a lot of low nitrogen, low sulfur, um, because as I'm managing both of those with the tests, <clears throat> with the soil test, I'm enhancing the uptake. Um, and so it looks like a drawdown. Really, we're just helping that grass turn really, really green and build proteins. And so talking about your, your back to the human health and the gut biome, I go down that, that rabbit hole too. You know, I think about building proteins. I mean, there's more protein in your grass clippings than there is in the T-bone I ate last night. And that those proteins take nitrogen and sulfur to build that. Interesting. So sulfur is one, I put ammonium sulfate in all my ferts. I did that will be reformulated a couple of years ago because I wanted to get some sulfur in there because I knew that would be beneficial because we used to just run straight urea. Um, so yeah, we added some of that in there and I can see ammonium sulfate gives me a little greener faster for what kind of what we talked about earlier. Um, but it does, it gives us that sulfur component in there as well. If somebody does have high sulfur, is that something they need to be alarmed about or they just kind of, it just kind of fixes on its own? 
I'm typically not too worried about high sulfur levels. Um, the only thing, if you're adding sulfur and you've got enough, you're just throwing some money away. In my opinion, you're not, there's not the environmental concern really around it. So I don't get too concerned about too much sulfur, Chris. I, Even if there is some, it's hard to get away from it in a lot of fertilizer products. Mm -hmm. um, so they're all going to have some in there. But yeah, if you're already high or optimal or high in sulfur, a little bit more isn't going to, you know, be detrimental to uh, your soil or, or your turf. Um, if you're super excessive, I'm talking like hundreds of parts per million, you know, you might want to allow that to draw down. And I would say if you're in that range, you either sampled right after you applied sulfur or your soils are uh, inherently like high in sulfur for some reason. But sulfur is very interesting. It acts like nitrogen um, and also um, boron's one of those ones that's very yeah. mobile, like so, um, sulfur as well. So a lot of times we'll see boron, sulfur, and nitrogen will, will be like the three that um, that can be low a lot of times based on um, mobility and you know where they're at and in the soil. And so, um, but sulfur uh, is really interesting because we didn't see a lot of sulfur deficiencies up until you know really the past you know. I'd say 15 years ago is when we really started seeing them. And that was really, and especially in agriculture, and that was really because of the manufacturing, right? We had a lot of like acid rain. And so people were, um, had great levels of sulfur in their soils in, in agriculture and obviously in lawns as well. Um, but um, now that, you know, manufacturing and um, that type of production has gone down, we're seeing a lot more sulfur deficiencies, not only in turf, but in agriculture as well. So it's really come into focus. And I'd say the last, you know, 15 years and um, a lot of our, so our samples that, that come through the lab are, are deficient uh, in sulfur. I'm not sure what is showing, but. Yeah, it's not just, that high, but. Yeah. Just to say the same. Thing that Chris said a little differently. It's like we're literally ground truthing the Clean Air Act, right? It, like it worked because we have less sulfur from that sulfuric uh, sulfuric acid in the in the rain. And so I've been seeing the same thing. Whether I'm sampling, you know, gardens, lawns, uh, ag ag fields, um, we're seeing lower and lower sulfur levels than we did 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and then also, I think part of it in the lawn side is using less of the sulfur coated ureas and more poly coat or bio coat ureas. We're not just inherently putting that sulfur out as part of our other product packages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we use poly coat for sure. So that's interesting. So ask, cause I used to hear about acid rain in the eighties. It used to yeah. scare me as a kid. I was like, I don't want to go out in the rain and play in the rain, but you know, <laughs> so now that there's the clean air act went in that has actually reduced the acid rain, which has reduced the buildup of sulfur in soils. Is that what we're, that's pretty yeah. interesting. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. Uh, that brings me to another thing that you guys kind of touched on. Like, hey, if you have high sulfur, you probably don't want to add more. But then Chris said there's not a perfect fertilizer. So I'd like to go over that now real quick. Because it's there. the only way there could be a perfect fertilizer is if, if I made an only nitrogen fertilizer and only phosphorus and only potassium and only sulfur. And I don't even know if it would be possible to do that because some of these elements have to come when they're combined with others. So you're always going to have some overlap. There's always going to be something you're going to throw down that you don't need. It's impossible to get that perfect fertilizer for, because you got to realize that that have to have a single, a perfect fertilizer combination for every combination that you could get on a test. And I don't know how many, I can't do that type of math, yeah. but that'd probably be <laughs> dozens of combinations at least to be able to do that. So we need to let people know that you're, you're going to optimize the best you can, but you're always going to have some overlap somewhere, right? Yeah, on the 
you know, on the golf courses, you know, that that's what they do though. A lot of times, like, um, you know, myself, I would buy all simples, right. SOP, um, potassium nitrate. I'd have all these simples, um, in storage. Right. And then based on soil analysis and kind of my gut feeling on, on certain things for a certain time, I would actually pull the individual things, tank mix them, uh, and then go spray those, Make those nutrients. Right. So on the golf course side, on the professional side, that, that happens all the time. It's, it's a very precise, very specific thing. Can you do the same thing in a lawn? You could, but you'd be pulled. I wouldn't even, I, I mean, I don't even do that. <laughs> I find the best, you know, I find the best fertilizer that meets, you know, my nutrient deficiencies and releases that the, you know, that I need to manage my lawn. Um, so it, it, you can buy all simple, you know, even within a simple though, you have potassium and nitrate. So you right. have two components, even within, you know, those, what they call simple products, ammonium sulfate, you know, has ammonium and sulfur, and sulfur, but, right. So you're getting two, right. Yeah. So yeah, that on the golf course, that's what I did all the, all the time. And it really helps you understand at very small levels, um, you know, how it can affect color and, you know, all of these things at, at very, very small levels. And so that part's pretty neat. And what really got me into the soil testing side and understanding deficiencies and how small amounts of the right thing um, can really lead to a turf grass response. Um, so that's one of the reasons uh, I made a career change was specifically because of that. But for a homeowner to have, you know, five or six different simple products and try and do, you know, the right pounds and the spreader and, you know, all of that is a very, you know, complex thing. Um, and so what we're doing is taking the data and then we're automating the selection of the product based on, you know, nutrient balance. And best available choice without right. me having to carry a hundred different fertilizers. <laughs> right. Yeah. We can narrow that down to, you know, four or five products that are going to do well, you know, for your lawn. Good. Let's, uh, let's move to the next one. This one's important because, you know, you I grew up on milk and milk being important calcium for strong bones. That's how I was raised. Now in my sample again here, I'm looking at high calcium, but let's talk about calcium, what it does and, you know, high, low and good or bad. Yeah, calcium, <clears throat> calcium builds strong bones in plants too. You know, it's part of cell walls. Um, it's part of cell membranes, uh, especially if you're a gardener, you want to maintain those high calcium levels. So you have, you know, strong skins on your tomatoes so they're not splitting. But of all of our elements that we talk about uh, being sticky, calcium is actually the stickiest um, of all of our basic soil cations. So calcium, magnesium, ammonium, potassium, calcium is the stickiest of all those. Um, and I'd love to geek out on the science behind that with you sometime, Alan. Um, but, but I mean, it just grabs onto soil particles and it actually helps hold soil particles together and form soil structure. And so, uh, unless that calcium is just exceptionally high proportionate to magnesium, I'm not that worried about it. Um, it's going to stick around our soils locally here in Southeast Washington tend to be really high in calcium. Um, so if I'm applying calcium, it's not as a nutrient. Typically, it's as an amendment for something else. I'm trying to put gypsum out uh, to move sodium out of the soil, or I'm trying to put lime out to increase pH, or dolomitic lime to increase pH and provide a little mag. Mm -hmm. um, so I, if I apply calcium, it's usually as an amendment, not as a nutrient, uh, at least locally. One uh, one caveat to that is... Um... High levels of calcium and magnesium together can also displace potassium 
uh, because it doesn't have as high of an affinity. And so um, if you get those high levels, it can be harder to have available potassium because it's not allowing potassium to hold on to any exchange sites. So uh, it may take higher levels of potassium to actually displace some of that calcium and magnesium from exchange sites. So you have, you know, available potassium um, in the soil. So it's really that base saturation is like, what's the ratio of calcium to magnesium to potassium. And you can really see those in the, in our test, um, you know, what those, what those balances are, you know, between those nutrients. And that's a pretty good indicator of, you know, which nutrients are occupying um, what portion of the exchange sites uh, on your soil. Yeah. So that kind of leads me in. So I'm looking at our last macro here, magnesium. And my magnesium on this test is also high. So I have high calcium, high magnesium, and then my potassium is registering low. So you're saying it could be because the calcium and magnesium are high. It's just locking up. I don't know if that's the term or pushing out so when you're, the availability yeah, so when you're, of the potassium. When you're applying potassium, you're applying it. It's probably in solution. Your plants are getting it, but you're not probably putting enough to displace calcium and magnesium. That's where those higher rates can come in and more of that build, right? It's like, if you came in with, you know, four pounds or five pounds, okay, you know, and apply that, you would start to displace, you know, some of that calcium and magnesium and give your potassium some, you know, seats at the table, as mm -hmm. Matt would say on exchange sites. Makes sense. And this, this test I'm looking at, this is a, a one from a couple of years ago that I took on my back lawn before I had done really anything to it. So this is kind of a baseline test. So let's talk a little bit of more about magnesium a little more. This is one because I've been getting in recently into hydration products and understanding good hydration. And so obviously um, I went down that rabbit hole with Prime and these all these energy drinks that are out there just having fun. And magnesium is one of the big ones in there. Potassium is too. Potassium and magnesium are the two bigs that they put into hydration drinks. So um, again, my test shows magnesium high, but Talk about that. This is the last macro we're going to talk about. What's uh, what's special about magnesium? You know, magnesium doesn't get as much attention as maybe as it should um, as far as plant health goes. We all know nitrogen makes grass green. We know iron makes grass green. Magnesium is part of chlorophyll. It makes grass green too. Um, and so where I've seen, uh, and magnesium is really sticky. We can load it. We can build it up pretty easily. Number of different products that can do that. Um, I was, uh, in my raised beds, I had a fully organic soil over top of native. So I had about a 12 inch raised bed and I had strawberries and strawberries were just rooted about six inches deep. And I had these plants that just were bright white in between the veins of the leaves. Um, and that's a magnesium deficiency. And so when we talk about that, that reserve magnesium's in reserve form in the mineral fraction of soils, not in the organic fraction. So if you are managing that organic matter up, awesome. Just keep an eye, an eye on your magnesium levels because they're not going to come up with your OM. Um, but yeah, magnesium can make grass green too, and it sticks around in the soil pretty well after you apply it. Good. Yeah, I've got quite a bit of magnesium in a couple of my ferts. Uh, okay, let's go into the minor nutrients, the micronutrients now, and start talking about those. I think we're going to be on a little, or I don't know, I'll let you guys tell me where I might be on a little bit of a different um, talk with those. But I guess let me summarize here now. So there are, from the macros we just looked at, there are some that you can build. And then there are some that, that you can only build if other macros are in line as well. And obviously pH is very important here. Um, and sometimes you're going to have to apply a fertilizer that doesn't just fill in just your slots perfectly. It's not a key. You know, sometimes we're going to have some overlap here and there. 
Um, let's get into the micros now. I guess we'll just start straight up with uh, sodium. In my test, it's good. Yeah. So, yeah, sodium. That it. There's a lot of different factors with with sodium. Um, obviously, sodium levels that are within the optimum range totally fine. Even a little high on our range are are typically totally fine. When you start getting into excess sodium, that's where you start having um, some real problems um, with uh, the ability of plants to pull in uh, water from the soil because that sodium starts to hold that water more tightly than the, the plant yeah. can actually pull mm -hmm. that. Uh, we've done some great work in soil lab on that, um, that you can uh, look at some of our gypsum application trials, but yeah. this is the case where um, high sodium, uh, high sodic soils and the use of gypsum can be uh, very beneficial. Yeah, so that sodium just pulls on water tighter than the plants can pull on water and wins the tug of war. <clears throat> and so we look at sodium in excess as a problem. If it's suboptimal, great, right? It's not necessarily an essential element. It's more times toxic than beneficial. Um, but we put sodium out on accident, on purpose, right? If you're using like kelp products of a that are oceanic derived, <clears throat> a lot of our compost and manures are high in sodium. So I think it's really important to monitor. And like Chris said, um, it's pretty straightforward to mitigate. If you have too much, you can put that gypsum out and basically the gypsum, the calcium in the gypsum kicks the sodium away from the dinner table and walks it out the door when we leach it out. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's also plays a big role in soil structure. If you have yeah. too much sodium, your soil has no, no structure to it. It's like powdered sugar. Mm -hmm. it's, it really has no structure. Interesting. Okay. This is good for me because I see a lot of different soil tests come back. So when I see them come back, this is helping my education too and how I can recommend things to people. Um, let's talk about, this is the biggest minor nutrient that everyone knows about because of the color change that you get in a lawn with it. Let's talk about iron. In my case, it's low. Chris, you want to tackle that one? Um, I would say that's the, in lawns, it's one of the ones that people know about and kind of focus on the most. Um, it's also relatively easy to apply iron and you know move iron levels up in the soil. Uh, when I say relatively easy, um, there are certain soils where you don't get very good responses from, from iron. And um, there are people that, uh, even in our area, you know, and we don't really get the, if you put ironite out or something, you really have to like over apply it and like turn your lawn black to actually like get a response from iron. Um, and so when I say it's an easy one to build up, it can be complex depending on soils and pH and uh, the type of iron that um, you're actually using. A lot of times in um, the fertilizer, you'll have multiple sources of iron um, in there to try and, and mitigate that as far as, you know, soil type and which one's going to, you know, perform the best. Um, I don't know want to add to yeah iron makes grass green no doubt um and like chris said some soils are more reactive to it than others um talking about where that iron is in the soil it's locked up a lot of times natural like naturally occurring irons locked up inside of soil minerals um <clears throat> so even though there's a lot of iron in the soil a lot of it's not available so that might be why our tests are reading low and mm -hmm. so yeah, I think it's important to supplement it. Um, I tend to use iron situationally. I don't really manage manage it to the top end of optimal. But when I need, you know, to have a barbecue and I need my lawn to pop, I put iron out. Um, and a lot of times I'll put a chelated iron source out because it's going to be more available more rapidly. And I can kind of predict that green 
more than I can with some of the non-chelated products. Yeah, and I've I understood. Like focused more on on um, you know, on soil like soil building, and I think it's important when we talk about micros, especially iron, to talk about foliar applications of, or liquid applications of some of these yeah. nutrients, where you can get a better response than allowing it to. Um, Inter interact with the soil and change the chemistry to where it, it may make it so it's not available like mm -hmm. foliar applications of iron or mixing in uh, foliar sprays here and there you can get tremendous results you know, foliarly foliarly with um, some of these micronutrients so yeah, i think that's go directly important. in yeah right mm -hmm. yeah all right let's move on to manganese this is a fun one so all of my miners are low on this test and again i'm this is from my backyard which was is just clay that was pulled out of a retention pond. So it's, there's really no, you know, that's why this shows this way, but, and, and by the way, if we need to just talk about all these in one, we can manganese, zinc, copper, boron. Yeah. I don't know if that's probably better. Um, but yeah, just let's talk about the rest of those. I guess we got manganese, zinc, copper, and boron. Yeah. Alan, thanks for opening that door to talk about yeah. those. The <laughs> I get it. The, the scientist in me is cringing at doing that, by the way. <laughs> but, the realist in me, I manage my micronutrients as a package, as a unit, not individually. Um, and that's larger because of the products are going to trickle a little bit low dose of, of a suite of micronutrients. And I like managing them that way. I mean, we're not growing food here. We're growing grass. Um, and so if I'm a little low in some of these, I'm not quite um, as, as concerned. So my approach to micros, mine tend to trend low also, is just to kind of low dose those at every app, you know, and make sure I'm moving uh, kind of direct with that directional nutrition management that we've talked about before. Uh, I'm just trying to move in that direction of increasing micros through time. Um, Chris had mentioned boron earlier. That's one that's, that's quite often low. It moves around quite a bit. Whereas your manganese, your zinc, your copper, those are sticky. They're, they're positively charged and they're going to stick, stick around in the soil um, a bit more. Um, coming back to that chelated piece, um, if I can throw like zinc chelates out, we see a ton more availability with zinc chelates. And in Soil Lab, we did a pretty fun zinc sulfate versus two different chelated zinc products uh, study. And we, we saw that a little bit goes a long ways with those chelated products. So I'm probably leaning that way on the zinc side, but zinc sulfate gets it done also. Awesome. Yeah, the, the micronutrients, I'd say of all our samples, I would say 85% of them have micronutrient deficiencies. It's, it's super common. It's, um, it's something that most fertilizers have small amounts of. I know Alan tried to incorporate each of those micronutrients into all the fertilizers, which is a great approach. So at least those plants are getting some of that mm -hmm. each time we're not building micronutrient levels. I've done a lot of work on, on that and building my, trying to build micronutrient levels. And it really involves buying like bulk micronutrient granular packs and like putting it down at like three and four pounds of to like, at least in, in my soils being a higher pH. So it's hard to move the needle on those and it's okay if those nutrients are low. And when, when we tier how we, you know, approach our consumers and um, what they need to focus on, it's really NPK and pH are, are kind of our, our first things. Once you get all your other nutrients in line, then we really focus on micronutrients because you're not, you're not going to get some crazy response and color from adding these micronutrient packages. Is it going to help the plant be healthier with 
physiological processes in the plant. Yes, we know, you know, that we know that happens, you know, um, fruit production in gardens, we know that that happens. But when we tier how we guide our consumers, um, it's really like NPK first, pH. And then once that's in balance, we can go and kind of put the finishing touches on if we want with, you know, these foliar sprays or try and get some, you know, buildup of nutrient in the soil. But as far as um, the cost per value of, you know, buying new micronutrient packages um, and what you're going to see from it. I think you might be, you know, maybe a little disappointed. You're going to get some color because it's going to have the iron and manganese and a lot of times magnesium in it. So you are going to get some color if you, you know, go at pretty heavy rates, but it's really the last, um, you know, nutrients that we really worry about is that micronutrient package. Yeah, that's why I include micronutrients in our FERPs. Not all of these, but um, some because it's only a few cents to have them included. Mm -hmm. And so I figure it's worth it to uh, go ahead and get those put out when it's only adding a few cents of cost per bag for us overall and for the customer. So it makes sense to go ahead and put them out then. But yeah, I'm with you. It's NPK and pH. And let's talk a little bit about pH because one way to really change your results is if your pH is off is to move your pH. And I think people expect miracles there as well. Um, and so with pH, can you talk a little bit about how hard it is to move pH up or down? So the, the pH and how, how easy it is to move it up or down is really a function of the type of soil you have. So the, the sandier your soil, the easier it's going to be in general terms to move soil pH. Um, the more clay you have in your soil, the more organic matter you have in your soil, the more challenging it's going to be uh, to change that soil pH. Um, and so we did another really good, great pH uh, study that ran uh, adjustment study. And we ran soils, uh, four different soils. I think the low pH was 4.2 and the high pH was around 8.5. And we found that 8.5 soil was tough to change. Um, it was a really silty and clayey soil. We call them buffered. They're highly buffered soils. Yeah. So the buffering capacity is how resistant that soil is to change. And that 8.5 soil was highly resistant. And so we decided it wouldn't be economical or feasible to change that pH. Instead, we were going to supplement with the nutrients that were limited because of that pH. And in our case, that was a bunch of micros. Um, so I did I did a really fun side-by-side uh, -side comparison when I was uh, a researcher at the university. And we had a sand-based putting green and a native soil. And we applied just ammonium sulfate as our nitrogen source for two years. The sand-based soil came in at pH, I think, 8.2, 8.3. And we got it down to 6.7. Our native soil under the same fertility program was at six, seven. And at the end of two years, it was at, oh, six, seven. Um, mm. So it didn't at all. So some soils are really resistant and others are a bit easier to change. So if you're sandy, they're probably going to change. If you're, you know, finer textured, probably uh, going to change slowly through time. Our cool. professor on the other end, that's kind of high pH soils on the, um, on the lime side, our professor at the university always said, lime it, you'll like it. So- <laughs> And when he says that, it's because he, you know, he was at Auburn. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in some more acidic soils and you do, see, you'll get a, you'll get a visual turf response after, after liming, you know, and the reason that is, is because you're adjusting that pH, you're, you're releasing nutrients that may not been available based on that, that soil pH. So you're getting a release or an adjustment in that soil of specific nutrients. And I think that's what you're leading to, Alan, is um, that, that can change the availability of nutrients. So 
Um, you know, and you talked about, you know, testing every three years. I think people get a little bit addicted to it and like to at least mm -hmm. do it annually, if not, if not more, just as a report card of, you know, how they're doing. Um, but pH is one of those. Um, if you are doing some pH adjustments, um, you can see some nutrient changes to kind of like look at your report card and maybe reset the fertilizer you're applying as you know, you adjust your pH and other things become available. Um, it's good to, you know, maybe do a sample to, you know, adjust the fertilizers you're using if um, you're making nutrient, you know, available and maybe you've been applying that nutrient. Now you don't need to because you've simply adjusted the pH and made it available. Mm -hmm. So basic summary, if you are adjusting pH and you're making applications to do that, whether it's sulfur um, or the other end you're, you're using lime, you want to make sure then that you do test a little more often just to see what kind of movement you're getting or not getting. Like you said, some soils, they're just not going to move. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, you're really lim and Alan, you're really good at, at driving this, but it, it's directional and you're really limited on an established turf, how much, how much lime yeah. you can physically put down, you know, yeah. and 300 and pounds per one, thousand is a little difficult, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah, you're mad. I mean, they have, um, you know, fast acting products um, that should help adjust it a little bit quicker that they use lower rates on. But if you're just using traditional um, lime, calcitic lime or dolomitic lime, you know, that you're, you're maxed at 20, 30 pounds. And that's a lot. I mean, you're putting out a lot of product per thousand square feet. And um, we really guide the type of lime too. So whether if your soils are low pH and low magnesium, you're going to use a dolomitic lime, right? So it has calcium and it has magnesium. Um, if your magnesium levels are good, then we typically just recommend the, the calcitic lime. So, yeah. 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 So at the end of the day, I think what I am taking away is, you know, we, we can look at, you know, are you on a build program, a maintenance program, or a drawdown? 99% of the people that I work with, they're on a maintenance program. They get our soil test. They come back. Here's the perfect maintenance program for you. This should keep things green. And that's what it comes back to. How does your lawn look? That's yeah. really the most important thing. And I've never preached anything other than that. I'm trying to get your lawn thicker and greener and more vigorous. That's my goal and all my programs. And if the lawn is looking good, then no matter how the soil test comes back, we still use that data to adjust going forward. But if the lawn is looking good, it's telling you that the lawn is adjusting in that soil. It's like I say, you know, there are people that live in, in poverty in this world that don't necessarily know it because no one's told them that. There are some lawns that live in poverty that don't know it because <laughs> it's just what they've <laughs> yeah. always known since they grew up. And all of a sudden now they start getting rich food and these grasses, they get green huge, you know, yeah. and then there's, so it's, it's, what does the lawn look like? That's kind of what I always bring it back to. Right. And it's, yeah, it's that, it's really that spoon feeding. It's no different than, you know, professional turf. You're giving it just what it needs. You're giving it the right ratio of nutrients it needs and just the right amount to where you're matching growth without loss. Yeah. And I think, you know, products like you're using that include organics, that include that micronutrient suite, that include the right ratio of nutrients, depending on the product line, you know, like no FOS versus having FOS. That's like your multivitamin, right? You're trending everything in the right direction to match those demands that you know are going to be made on the soil for the plant. Perfect. Um, that's kind of everything I had. I, it's just, I've learned a lot. What what I get out of these conversations is now I get to go back and study a lot of things. Like I, I've heard the term cations before and things like that and studied that, um, but it's been a while. So I need to go back and kind of look at some of that too and understand those 
those exchange sites and how those can uh, can have nutrients fighting over this or that or space. I love that stuff. So that's going to be good for me. This is the time of year I do that. I start researching things that I haven't necessarily dug into in a while or at all. Um, so that's going to be really good for me too. And I appreciate it. So with that, why don't you guys uh, let us know? I mean, we you mentioned the Soil Lab YouTube channel quite often. I definitely recommend people to go there. We'll put a link in the description or in the show notes to go check that out. But where else can they find you guys if they uh, want to learn a little bit more? Yeah, on YouTube, uh, yeah, Soil Lab, uh, one word. And then, um, you know, obviously you can get there from uh, mysoiltesting.com is, uh, is the MySoil website. Um, we have a lot of good content and information as well. And the, again, the reason uh, we push Soil Lab is for this conversation. Like we want to back everything that we're recommending and promoting. We want to back that with science replicated trials. And that's really the the goal of Soil Lab is we don't want to just be a soil test. You know, we want to we want to do all of these other things to make, um, you know, our results and what our consumers get from our product that much better. And then again, our partnerships also um, benefit from that as well. So it really drives a lot of our back end, um, our recommendations and knowing and feeling good that our recommendations are going to be positive for anybody that does, you know, a yard mastery or my soil, um, test. And so that's why we kind of plug soil lab so much as, you know, we just feel it's super unique and we're providing a level of, of content and information. Um, some of it gets pretty heavy, but, um, some of it's also light, you know, as well, like kind of how we talk today and it's really starts to bring in the plants themselves where we're looking at plants and roots and, um, you know, how effective the root stuff is Alan, um, just to be able to physically see those things in those replicated trials and present those is, you know, really neat. Yeah, I just really, with that Soil Lab channel, my goal is just to kind of bring the science to life for our DIYers, for our for our community. And like Chris said, the science geek in me gets a little carried away occasionally. Um, but it's just trying to take this really complex ecosystem and all these interactions and say, why does it matter? Because at the end of the day, we want to know if gypsum works, right? Um, and so that's what we're trying to do to help you yeah, facilitate conversations like we had. And I sure appreciate the opportunity to come and, and chat with you today, Alan. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Matt and Chris. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to get on again and yeah, look forward to all the questions and comments that may arise. All right, y'all. What a fun podcast. I did a whole bunch of little segments in between. I'm not even sure how I'm going to end up editing those in, but you've gotten this far in the podcast. So you have heard how I edited those in. And uh, it's just I'm, what I'm basically been doing in this podcast is as I've gone back through and listened to it, because I've gone back through now twice and listened to the actual podcast and then gone in and made some of these actual actual little additions here. And it's me just talking to you in real time as I'm learning and studying because I've been studying. We did this podcast a couple of days ago. I've done some different studies on different things, and it's kind of I'm letting you know what's going through my mind as I look at things. And just pretty interesting. And I'm also reading in the comments in our Facebook group and elsewhere what we get in for tickets, uh, help tickets, because we're doing a lot of soil tests right now. So we're getting a lot of uh, help tickets in about those as well as we're getting questions on Facebook. And by the way, look for the Lawn Care Nut Facebook group. I'll link it in the show notes as well as in the description if you want to check it out. Love to have you there. But um, I'm looking at those questions that are coming in. And so I'm trying to answer some of those as we do this. And so I want to just reiterate that there isn't a perfect fertilizer for every single situation, right? There are only ones that are better. And so 
there's going to be some overlap. So if you have, um, you know, a, a soil test that comes back and let's say your phosphorus is in line or, or slightly high and you get recommended freedom because this will happen. Well, that means you're going to get some, some, um, some phosphorus because freedom is a 17, 17%, 17% nitrogen, 7% phos and 6% potassium. It's a pretty well-balanced fert. It's supposed to compete with the 1648, which is everybody's everybody general fertilizer. That's what 1776 is. It's just cooler because it's the year 1776, and that's why we call it Freedom Ura. It's just a cool fert, and uh, Brett gets credit for naming that one. So really fun stuff. But sometimes you'll have phosphorus that's a little bit high or, or in range, and you'll get recommended that. Well, that's because that fertilizer has magnesium in it, and sometimes if you need the magnesium, that could be what's uh driving it but also if you do need some potassium and some nitrogen so i'm just saying there's different reasons why and that's not the reason every time you know there's a there's a lot of different reasons why some of these ferts might get recommended but there's nothing that's going to be perfect there isn't going to be this i think my phone's ringing there isn't going to be this 100 percent perfect fertilizer every time I'm not going to be able to do that because I'd have to have too many different combinations if I was able to hit every single combination, you know, because of the uh, elements we track. You know, there's six macronutrients and six micronutrients. So that's 12 total um, data points. Imagine all of the different combinations I would have to have to be perfect to only give you only what you needed. So we do the best we can, right? And sometimes you might get a fertilizer that has a little bit of something in it that you don't necessarily need on your soil test. That's okay. I just want you to know we're not, nothing's going to be hurt by adding that little bit more. And it's not something that that's going to cause any harm to the lawn. So we can kind of look at the hum, human body analogy. I, let's do that real quick here in the end. For those of you sticking with me, thanks. I appreciate it. Hope wherever you are right now, this is being something that's getting you thinking and you're learning something. But here's the human body. Here's what the human body needs. This is part of the studies I've been doing. Vitamin A, B vitamins and folic acid, vitamin C, D, E, and K, calcium, iodine, iron, beta carotene, chromium, copper, magnesium, manganese, molybdenum, phosphorus, potassium, selenium, sodium chloride, salt, and zinc. A lot of familiarity there, right? Pretty interesting, right? If you look at all the stuff that we track on the soil test that you've just gone through with this podcast, you hear a lot that overlap there. Now, you need some of those in greater quantities than others, right? You know, some of these you don't need a lot. You don't need as much uh, manganese as you do vitamin C or vitamin D, right? So interesting stuff. I've also been, I think I mentioned, I've been looking at hydration drinks, pretty having a lot of fun there, looking at health type stuff recently. And so some of this means a lot to me too, vitamin C, vitamin D, very important. So if you think about it, if you go do a blood test, right, and it indicates that you're low on iron, well, then what will your doctor do? They'll prescribe you an iron supplement or they'll tell you to eat more red meat, but normally they can just prescribe you an iron supplement. And I think it's mostly women that are low on iron. They're mostly the ones that get prescribed iron supplements. But in many cases, you may be low on multiple things. Let's say you go in and you're low on calcium, iron, potassium, vitamin D, and vitamin C, and magnesium. Well, there may not be, that's six things, there may not be an exact vitamin that has just only those six things in it that you could take, right? Probably wouldn't exist. So your other option is then you can take, um, go to a custom dosing place, and you can get singles of every one of those. You know, one that's only calcium, one that's only iron, only potassium, only vitamin D, only vitamin C, only magnesium. Or you can go, people get the IVs now. You guys ever been to one of those IV places? You can do that. But see, that's, that's I mean, that's, that's not fun. I don't care who you are. So what does your doctor normally do? They'll be like, hey, this is a multivitamin. It's got a lot of stuff in it, but it definitely has the six that you need. And so then you can take just one vitamin. So there's extremes in either case. There's fertilizers that could be perfect. 
Then there's the single simples that Chris called them, right? The simple fertilizers. If you had to 12 different fertilizers, simples, which again, that's not even possible because you can't get certain elements without others being mixed just because of chemistry. But that'd be a pain in the butt to have to do that, to take pills that way or vitamins that way, or to have to fertilize your lawn that way with 12 different items, you know? <laughs> again, golf courses, they do that. That's cool. That's sports turf. These are home lawns though. So we have a lot more forgiveness in a home lawn. So think about it that way. And sometimes it's easier to have something that's kind of in the middle, which is what I would consider our our uh, our custom program when you take the soil test. It's not totally generic and it's not taking singles. It's in the middle. It's giving you a good combination based on the on the SKUs that we have, a good combination to really try to dial in your needs a lot more than just going something totally generic and no soil test at all. You're definitely getting dialed in on a couple levels deeper. And then what that does is that should make things more efficient for you. So Really, really cool stuff. I hope this helps you guys with with the overall. At the end of the day, my my real goal for y'all is to have a thicker, greener lawn and to be greener than everyone else around you because that's what we want, right? We want to have that show-off lawn, baby. I mean, I, it's dominant lawn. That's my thing, you know? I have fun with that. You know, you do that. When you're a short guy, you grew up like me with Napoleon Complex. You know what you do to those tall guys? You have a nicer lawn than they do. <laughs> you know? And, uh, but the fun, the funny thing is, you know, now that I'm an adult, 50 years old, those things don't matter anymore. And so now it's just fun to teach my neighbors, you know, most of my neighbors are on my programs. One of my neighbors, I'm working on his lawn this year. We just did soil samples at his house. Um, I started mowing his lawn last year, but my neighbor across the street, his name is Art. He loves my stuff. He tells everybody because he'll, I'll be over at his house. We'll have a couple of beers or whatever. And people will ask about his lawn. Uh, we had a Christmas, he had a Christmas party this year. People ask about his lawn and he'll go, I use his stuff. I use Alan's stuff. The flagship, you got to use the flagship. Art swears by the flagship. You know, that's fun stuff right there. I just think that's cool stuff. It's no different than your buddy telling you a great barbecue recipe, right? <laughs> this is just how do you have a nice lawn? And uh, that's really what this is all about. And that's what makes this whole thing fun. And that's why we have this community of people that all enjoy those similar types of interactions with their neighbors. So while we talk about dominating the neighborhood, it's really about, you know, as you get to become an adult and you get over that uh, prideful or whatever, whatever that scornful feeling is because you're a short guy. <laughs> One day, all it is to you is it's just fun. And it's a good reason to hang out with your neighbors and to be a good neighbor. So with that, I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And I will see you in the lawn.